The title of this evening's talk is Just As It Is. After six years of engaging in extreme ascetic practices and finding that in fact they weren't bringing the liberation of heart and mind that he was seeking, it's said that the Bodhisattva asked himself, could there be another path to enlightenment? In reflection with this inner questioning, an image, the memory of a particular experience from his childhood appeared to Siddhartha Gautama. He remembered a particular spring day when he was a boy of six. That morning, his father had taken him to the spring plowing festival, a time each year when the men in the community, rich and poor alike, came together for a day of plowing up the earth, an annual ritual marking the beginning of the spring planting season. Young Siddhartha, seated comfortably and quietly under a sweet-smelling rose apple tree, observing the scene unfolding before him with a very open heart and unfettered attention that children sometimes give to things. Nothing really on his mind. In those moments of not wanting or fearing anything, he was aware of the earth breaking open in even wave-like furrows, noticing the heat shimmering up off the freshly open soil. He was aware of the shining on the sweating faces and the straining bodies of the men and of the oxen and noticed the flash and sparkling of the sunlight coming off the bronze harnesses and the dark horns of the oxen. He felt the plodding rhythm of the oxen's hooves and cowbells rolling on and on and on amidst the strong, sharp shouts of the men. He also clearly heard the beautiful songs of the birds, as well as the shrill cries of the birds as they dove and pecked and devoured the swarming insects and the grubs, worms and broken bodies of the mice left out on the upturned soil. All of this laboring, devouring, struggling, suffering, dying, endlessly going on beneath and right along with the gaiety, joy, and the beauty of that spring festival day. All of this entered into young Siddhartha's heart and mind as he sat alone under the tree, deeply experiencing and intuitively reflecting on the scene before him. And in his heart, finding no resistance, no tension, no inner conflict, nothing to add, nothing to take away, no picking and choosing. As he silently sat quite still and quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states of mind, taking all of this in without prejudice or attachment. He experienced a sweet pleasure, a happiness that was not born out of desire for 
or clinging to anything. And in his young mind, a deep intuitive understanding was seated. As a young man, in remembering this experience, the thought occurred, could this be the path to enlightenment? And it's said that following on uh, the memory of this joyful and insightful experience from his childhood, that the bodhisattva became filled with energy, filled with assurance that this, in fact, was the path to liberation. And he resolved to sit quietly and press forward in deep meditation until he reached full understanding, true freedom. This was a turning point for the Buddha to be in his quest for liberation, in his quest for enlightenment a change in his relationship to suffering and his evaluation to pleasure. At this most important point of turning in his quest for liberation, Siddhartha realized that the confusion, the misunderstanding, the delusion, the greed, anger, anguish, and hatred all of the dark and afflictive states wouldn't be, couldn't be, purified, banished, released, let go of, relinquished, by creating extreme hardships for oneself, and then putting up with, or living through, these extreme inflicted, self-inflicted hardships, kind of toughing it out, or by trying to lose oneself in them. Potentially, a certain kind of strength might be gained, but the light at the end of the tunnel, so to say, would never be seen, felt, or known with this way. Siddhartha realized that pleasure was no longer to be feared, no longer to be banished through the practice of extreme austerities, that this would never bring a sustaining sense of well-being. He understood that when pleasure is born internally, within a mind, within a heart, that is secluded, free from mental and bodily hindrances of lethargy, restlessness, greed, clinging, free from the various permutations of aversion, confusion, doubt, he understood that when pleasure is born of seclusion and detachment, that it's not only okay, but that, that it's a valuable and necessary accompaniment along the path of awakening. And that it, in fact, points to the sustaining happiness of a heart, a mind, that's no longer run by the energies of greed, clinging, fear, judgment, anger, and confusion. As a child, this natural state of an undisturbed mind is something that young Siddhartha wandered into, so to say. The world outside going on just as it is thoughts and feelings arising and changing, coming and going. No different in those moments from anything else in the world. Nothing 
to agree with, nothing to argue with, nothing to cling to, nothing to pick and choose, outside or inside. And yet this natural state of an undisturbed mind isn't so easy to wander into for most of us. We often have a mind made up, a mind made up about how it's supposed to be or isn't supposed to be, what's good or what's bad, what we must have or must not have in order to, a mind made up about what we definitely know is true or isn't true. A mind made up, a mind that clings to what it's made up. This is what prevents us from clearly, directly, and honestly meeting the moment we're in, keeping us in conflict, keeping us from the possibility of wandering into the natural state of an undisturbed mind. This is, in essence, the cause of anguish and confusion. This in essence, is the cause of dukkha. There's an early uh, Chinese Buddhist teaching, a long poem by Sangan, that speaks of this with wisdom and clarity. I'd like to share just a few stanzas of it with you. The great way is not difficult if you just don't pick and choose. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the dis-ease of the mind. The way is perfect like vast space, where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. Indeed, it is due to our choosing to accept or reject that we do not see the true nature of things. When the mind exists undisturbed in the way, nothing can offend. And when a thing can no longer offend, It ceases to exist in the old way. When no discriminating thoughts arise, the old mind ceases to exist. Just let things be their own way, and there will be neither coming nor going. Obey the nature of things, your own nature, and you will walk freely and undisturbed. The great way is not get difficult if you just don't pick and choose. So these preferences of ours, our constant picking and choosing, most of us being quite attached to our preferences, our choices, and carrying a deep-seated underlying hope that if we try hard enough, think the right way, prefer the right thing, remove the irritant, choose intelligently, that things, people, particular situations, that life will do what we want it to do or not do what we don't want it to do. That with certain conditions being particular ways that are, of course, our preferences, 
that will be happy. Along with this hope that borders on a belief for many people, there's also a deep-seated underlying fear, the other side of which is actually wisdom, that life just does what it does that essentially it's unmanageable, ungovernable, that essentially we have no control over how it is. When in our practice we begin to look into and begin to see our preferences and the activity in the mind of picking and choosing, to look into the conditioned mind, the with mind, the mind with conditions. Seeing this phenomena occurring without getting seduced into the content, when we touch this, we're actually seeing into the cause of anguish and confusion seeing into the cause of suffering. When in our practice we begin to look into and see the underlying fear of things being unmanageable, out of our control, again, without getting seduced into the content of whatever stories or considerations may be surrounding the fear, we're actually, potentially, taking a step in the direction of wisdom, stepping into the territory of truth, the territory of just how it is. Stepping into the territory of truth asks us to let go of our cherished, hoped-for map. The without mind. To be without these sought-after conditions for a moment. A mind for a moment without conditions. Willing to simply be with, look into, and see to see it, whatever it is, just as it is. I found it to be totally amazing and totally ordinary in the ways that these illuminations can present themselves through our formal practice and in our life as our practice outside of retreat settings. We're sitting for 45 minutes, an hour, calm, tranquility, a degree of stillness and sweetness developing and being known. And then the thought coming through, this is good. I'll just stay for another hour or or more. And then, strong bodily pain. Sensations that start up in the legs. And maybe we continue to hold very tightly to our agenda, our hope, our preference to sit another hour and get through the pain. Put up with it. Tough it out. Find a way to get rid of it or try to ignore it, or somehow pretend it's not there, so that we can meet our preference, our goal. This relationship to pain makes it a thing, something solid, substantial, a concept, and something to control, 
so that we can continue with what we've chosen to do, the thing we think that will lead to our awakening, sitting another hour. Or maybe we relate to the pain with the without mind, a mind not made up, without preferences, without picking and choosing anything, without the concept of pain. There might be the open-hearted receptivity to see, what is this thing I want to get away from? or that I want to get away from me. We might notice that when our leg moves just a tiny bit, the discomfort disappears. And there's a sudden recognition of the insubstantiality of the seeming solidity of pain, rather than the habitual thought, oh, thank God that's gone. we might simply, directly, and intimately connect with what is. Seeing all the varying sensations occurring in our leg and notice them changing and moving. Recognizing that this sit right now is a meditation with changing sensations. Nothing solid, nothing static. No preference, no picking and choosing in those moments, no time frame, just being with, seeing and knowing experience just as it is. This relationship to experience, to any phenomena that that arises in our body-mind continuum, with the without-mind relationship to things. Just the right ground for wisdom to sprout up and blossom. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. In our practice, in our life as our practice, recognizing the mind that's made up, the mind that's clinging, sets the stage for the recognition and the realization of the cause of suffering. And the very natural movement of the heart, the mind, to let go, to soften, to open, and simply relinquish the contraction of clinging. Just about everyone has ideas, opinions, concepts about how it is, how it's supposed to be, what's true, what's good and will make us happy, what's bad and will make you miserable, angry or sad. If you hold tightly to these opinions, these concepts, They could prevent you from meeting the moment you're in. And you miss your appointment with life, as Thich Nhat Hanh says. What if events don't have to be anything other than what they are? Just let things be in their own way. And there will be neither coming nor going. Obey the nature of things, your own nature, 
and you will walk freely and undisturbed. For instance, the thought of and the experience of anicca, impermanence, often conceived of and related to with the mind of resistance, fear, rage, despondency. What about the truth that if there were no change, there would be no life. Imagine, if you can, what it would be like if nothing ever changed. An incredible nightmare, the worst nightmare, if nothing ever changed. No anicca, no impermanence, no life. Maybe we should consider celebrating Anicca. There's a small poem by an Australian cartoonist and poet named Michael Lunig, and with each poem that he writes, he draws a little cartoon. So I'd like to share the poem, but I want to describe the cartoon first. There's a small line drawing of a man standing up, and his left arm is outstretched to the side, and in his hand he's holding a frying pan, and in the frying pan there's a pile of burned stuff with smoke billowing out of this burned stuff sitting in the frying pan, and the man's head is turned towards the frying pan, his eyes are wide open in a kind of an amazed expression. And this is the poem that goes with that little line drawing. We give thanks for the invention of the handle. Without it, there would be many things we couldn't hold on to. As for the things we can't hold on to anyways, let us gracefully accept their ungraspable nature and celebrate all things elusive, fleeting, and intangible. They mystify us and make us receptive to truth and beauty. We celebrate and give thanks. Our idea that certain events are bad and are supposed to make us sad or angry just might not be true. In 1985, uh, the house that I was living in, although I wasn't there at the time, burned down to the ground. And there wasn't anyone there when this happened. My three grown sons and I were in Mexico visiting my mother. I received a phone call a couple of days after we had arrived for our visit from a friend who lived down the road from the house. And he had called to tell us that um, the house had burned down. This house was in Michigan in the, in the forest. My first re- response or reaction, actually, uh, to his telling me was um, one of uh, denial. I said, oh, you're kidding. But of course, who would uh, call somebody up thousands of miles away on Christmas uh, to tell them that their house burned down to the ground as a joke? So quickly, I believed what he said. And we finished our conversation, hung up the phone, and I cried very hard for about 15 minutes. And my mother, who happened to be standing next to me, just put her arms around me, didn't ask any questions, just held me, and then I stopped crying. And my brother and I, who was also visiting, went and sat down and had a two-hour conversation. By the end of that conversation, the fire turned out to be a gift. I didn't have any things to hold me, to bind me. 
the spiritual path burned its way open for me, we could say. Literally burned its way open for me. And as some of you probably know, in Asian countries, it's not at all unusual for people in their 40s and 50s whose families, uh, family responsibilities have essentially ended uh, to go out, uh, go off, and spend the rest of their life as a spiritual life. So, uh, to make a long story short, I ended up going to Asia soon after that fire for about a year and a half and practiced uh, quite ardently, very diligently, and then came back to this country and continued in a similar way. If it wasn't for that fire, there's probably a very good chance that I wouldn't be here with you in this way this evening. That huge change was actually a gift that is still unwrapping itself. And this is a little haiku from Basho. Since my house burned down, I have a better view of the rising moon. I had a student who, um, when he began to connect more deeply with the truth of anicca and the understanding that um, he didn't have control over the unfolding of events, and as, as he expressed it, uh, he not only saw that his day never went just as he planned it, but he began to truly accept that that's just how it is he also began to see and accept that his aging body was no different than the day. That it too was simply unfolding, undoing, according to conditions that he had absolutely no control of. In a practice interview with him one evening, he told me that he was beginning his sit each morning before going to work with forgiving his body and forgiving the day before it starts. Because in his words, it never goes as I plan, hope, expect, dream it to be. His habit for many years had been one of aversion, mostly anger at taking an offensive stance at things, at people, events, not going his way. His early morning forgiveness practice wasn't out of the feeling that the day or his body had or was about to do something wrong and that he needed to forgive them for this. Forgiveness was coming out of the softening heart of acceptance for how it is. And in part, this softening heart was forgiving itself for the pain that it had experienced for so many years in hardening against how things are. When he told me about this piece of his practice, I was quite struck by the unusual way that he was using forgiveness. And that, in fact, it was really working for him, helping him to recognize and more deeply accept that there's no control, that things arise, change, and pass without end. When the mind exists undisturbed in the way, nothing can offend. And when a thing can no longer offend, 
it ceases to exist in the old way. When no discriminating thoughts arise, the old mind ceases to exist. To sustain and deepen in and with our practice, to see things as they are, two of the most essential qualities of heart, of mind, that are required of us are honesty and humility. Self-deception and clear seeing are mutually incompatible. In relationship to other people, for instance, it doesn't matter if another person notices that I'm feeling and maybe even expressing anger. It doesn't matter if his image of me is shattered. What matters is that you're willing to come face to face with your anger and the awareness of the anger. And this is hard work. Tremendous energy and humility are needed to sustain the observation, to see yourself as you are. And because you see yourself as you are, without judgment, you make no effort to project a different image to yourself or to anyone else. Vimala Thakar, who you may remember I uh, quoted from uh, briefly in my last Dharma talk, who was one of Krishnamurti's closest students and who is a very profound and powerful spiritual teacher in her own right, says this. That is the only austerity that is required of an inquirer, the austerity of humility, to see things as they are, to see my inner being as it is, good or bad, to observe it as it is without defending it, without justifying it, without interpreting or judging judging it, without taking pride in it, and without relegating the responsibility of those states to other people. Humility is the perennial source of energy or freshness. Humility enables you to learn, keeps you pliable, perhaps to the last breath, I hope, she says. The great Thai forest meditation master, Achan Cha, used to tell his monks, it's a good thing I'm not perfect. If I was, you'd get dependent on me for your awakening and not do the absolutely necessary work of looking into yourself. At times along the way, there may be a very subtle aspect of complacency in our practice. Or the knowing of a degree and depth of peace and ease that has honestly and truly manifested, been established and known through our practice, that we're deeply grateful for and that we may have settled for. If we're lucky, if we truly take our life as our practice, at various points along the way, we'll step into or welcome in pieces of life, aspects of our human experience that ask us to go 
maybe surprisingly deeper than we might deliberately pick or choose. To go deeper into relinquishing aspects of our map, our map of the world that still varies from the actual territory of how it is. During this past year of my life, I've discovered something about preferences, about picking and choosing, the with mind, the mind that's made up, and the strain and the struggle and the pain therein. And I've discovered something about the without mind, the heart, the mind that's not made up, that doesn't want anything to be different, that isn't picking and choosing. They're not new discoveries, but this recent understanding has shown up from an unexpected and even unsuspected depth. Just about a year from right now, I spent uh, five days with my mother, who celebrated her 92nd birthday this past October. And she was living in a very difficult situation, about an hour and a half away from where I live in Taos. At the end of my visit, as I was just about ready to walk out the door, I turned around and looked long at her and really letting in the whole the whole situation into my heart and then I said to myself I can't leave her here I'm taking her home with me within an hour I had her and most of her essential belongings packed up and in my car and then we were off In retrospect, the moment of knowing what must be done and the subsequent hour of activity in response to this knowing was probably as pure a moment as I've had. Simply responding with the clarity, spontaneity, and equipoise of the still and empty mind, out of which springs unconditional compassion the without mind, the heart without preference, no thought of picking and choosing, the heart, the mind, wide open, spacious, no thoughts of the past, not anticipating the future, a mind not made up about things. And then we were home to Taos, and an unsuspected, unexpected depth of practice ensued. Very quickly it dawned on me that I'd made a commitment to take my mother into my life until death do us part, as I said to a friend. She couldn't go back to where she was, had been and I could not shift her off to a nursing home. Life took a radically new turn, living very closely with another person, and this being happening to be my mother. After living alone for many, many years, in a life filled with practicing and teaching the Dharma in many, many different places, And now, all of a sudden, living very closely with someone who needs a great deal of ongoing caretaking in relation to the basics of life that we usually take quite for granted for ourselves. Preparing and eating appropriate food, taking medication, washing our bodies and our clothes, dressing, toileting, 
communicating, knowing what time of day it is and what that might mean in relationship to sleep or being awake. Though my heart is fully committed to seeing us through this last bit of my mother's life, whatever that might be, the with mind, the mind of picking and choosing, the conditional mind, has stepped up a few times, seemingly out of the depths, with a strength and a burn that's taken me by surprise. What an incredible opportunity to see the contraction, the depth and intensity of the discomfort of tightening up around my preferences, what I want to do and when I want to do it. What an incredible opportunity to bring the qualities of honesty and humility, to see the depth and the intensity of the discomfort of resistance to how things are, the painful contraction of wanting life to be different than it is. Even though the heart and mind are fully committed to being with how it is, And what an incredible opportunity to see the ease, the peace of mind, the peace of heart, when there's no preference, no picking and choosing, no pull, no yearning, no hoping for, no anger, no fear, no resistance. Just knowing the peace the ease of being. Nothing to become, nothing to get. The without mind. Nothing needing to be different than it is. And simply going about the day, our day or our night, from this relationship to things. And from Ajahn Chah, be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come drink at the pool. And you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. Can we relinquish our preference of picking and choosing? Can we be with phenomena, whatever it is, just as it is, The truth is lying in wait to be seen and known right in this moment. Can we begin to see and realize the true nature of things in every kind of birth? Not needing to add anything, not needing to take anything away. Can we wander into the natural state of the equipoise, of the undisturbed mind, the world outside going on just as it is, thoughts and feelings arising and changing, coming and going, no different than anything else in the world, nothing to argue with, nothing to cling to, The great way is not difficult if you just don't pick and choose. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear 
and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. The way is perfect like vast space where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. Indeed, it is due to our choosing to accept or reject that we do not see the true nature of things. The wise strive to no goals. The foolish fetter themselves. There is one Dharma, not many. Distinctions arise from ignorant clinging. If the mind makes no discriminations, the 10,000 things are seen as they are, of one essence. Fathoming the mystery of one essence is to be released from all entanglements. The great way is not difficult if you just don't pick and choose. And let's sit together for just a few moments. May the merit of our practice be joined with all the wholesome actions of the three times, past, present, and future. And together may it all be dedicated to the welfare, the happiness, and the liberation of all beings everywhere. 